0: Um, you might hear a running commentary. That's because we talk. Um, Claire has saying stuff. We're not sure what she's saying, but she thinks she's communicating with me. So uh, there'll be some of that 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 happens. So anyway, we are in the book um, in the story of the disciples. Uh, technically, they're they're actually apostles. They're different. Uh, there were a number of disciples. There were only twelve apostles. We uh, have been looking at these, these 12 guys. They're ordinary people. They're not anything spectacular. They're people just like you and me. And we're trying to understand how God used them, flaws and all, and how God works. And it's encouragement for us, for us to know that God can use us as well. So we've talked about, um, the, basically you can look at the 12 apostles in groups of four, three groups of four. The group that is most often talked about is the one we're talking about right now, and that's the group with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Uh, We've talked about the idea that Peter was a leader. Peter was a work in progress. Peter had a lot of issues and a lot of struggles, but God chose him and used him in spite of all of the struggles, and God used the struggles to accomplish great things with him. Uh, Last week, we talked about his brother, Andrew. Andrew is uh, the person who's always bringing people to Jesus. Uh, Andrew's the guy who, who uh, actually, when people come to Philip and want to meet Jesus, Philip takes them to Andrew to take them to Jesus. And we talked about the idea that Andrew is kind of that guy who, he, he wasn't in the forefront. He was with three very, very aggressive, opinionated guys, and yet Andrew kind of stood in the background, and he just did all that background stuff to keep everybody in line. And, and, and that was a, great, it was a great need for the disciples. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at a third of that group of four, and that is the, the disciple, the apostle James. Uh, James and John are often mentioned together, and we're looking at James because first rather than John because James was the oldest, right? And that's going to become kind of significant in, in what we're talking about. There are three Jameses that are mentioned in the Bible. James, son of Zebedee, that's the one we're going to be talking about today. His brother was John, James and John, sons of Zebedee. Uh, there is James uh, Alphaeus, sometimes known as son of Alphaeus, sometimes known as James the Lesser. And then there is a third James that was the brother of Jesus. Uh, he's the one that wrote the book of James. And he's the one that when we get to the book of Acts and there's a church at Jerusalem, he's the pastor. Right? So the James that we're looking at this morning is James the brother of, uh, James the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Uh, That's the guy that we're looking at. And Zebedee is going to kind of become important uh, in our story uh, as we talk about it. Their mother uh, was probably a a gal by the name of Salome. Uh, You may know her as a a friend of Jesus. And we're actually going to come face to face with her today as well. Uh, James is a, um, uh, he's always mentioned with John. So whenever you see him mentioned, it's usually James, the brother of John, or James and John there's one exception. Uh, We're going to look at that. Acts chapter 12, uh, when he is killed uh, by Herod Antipas, uh, he's only mentioned by himself. And uh, he is the only disciple, the only apostle that is actually mentioned in the Bible in the way that they died. Uh, He is the first martyr of the 12 apostles. And uh, we'll be looking at that story as well. So, That's a little bit. He plays a very, very important role in the life of Christ because we often see him in some of the exclusive stories. And by that, what I mean is there are some stories with Jesus where there's just those three guys, Peter, James, and John. And and James is part of that inner circle, that inner three. Uh, We see that at the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, We see that uh, when uh, uh, Jesus is in the garden and he looks at Peter, James, and John and says, you stay here and pray for a while. Um, They had gone apart from the other disciples. So we see these guys playing a a fairly significant role in in those kinds of things. So uh, let's take a look at at one of the passages uh, about him. And and you're going to have to bear with me because I've got to give you a lot of Old Testament history for you to really understand this passage. But it it will help you. So uh, here we are. We're going to look at the the first passage, uh, Luke chapter 9. Here's the story. Now, When it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, so in other words, we're coming to the end of the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're actually going to head to Jerusalem for the last supper, the last Passover, right before Christ is is crucified. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him, because his face was set for a journey to Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now, one of the nicknames for James and John were sons of thunder. And that was not because they were quiet people or because they didn't have a passion and a zeal and a temper. So their solution to the problem is, um, you want us to call down fire from heaven and wipe them all out? That'll take care of the problem. And notice, he turned and rebuked them. And said, You don't know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. All right. Give you a lot of background so you understand the story. They were heading to Passover. All right. So they're, they're, they're traveling down to Passover. Now, there's two routes to get to Jerusalem. The shortest route is to go through Samaria. Most Jews didn't do that. Most Jews went around Samaria to the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other, and I mean hated each other. There was a big debate among the Jews and the Samaritans about where they should worship. If you remember the story of the woman at the well in Samaria, what happens? At the story of the woman at the well, remember one of her discussions with Jesus is where should we worship? And the reason was because the Samaritans believed they should worship up at Mount Gerizim, which was close to them, and not worship in Jerusalem. So the Samaritans are saying, now Alexander the Great wiped that out when he came through. But they still wanted to worship up there at the top. So here's the idea. The idea was, where should we worship? And Jesus explains to her, it's not about that. It's about living water. And and he leads her to the Lord. She comes to know Christ as her Savior. But in that story, you have to understand that there was a debate between the Jews and the Samaritans about where they should worship. They believed it was Gerizim. The Jews believed it was Jerusalem. Now, what is Jesus doing? He is on his way to where? Jerusalem, to worship. So to a Samaritan, do you want to have any part in helping a Jew get to Jerusalem to worship? No. Because you believe worship should be at your place, not at their place. So there was a, and by the way, what's Jesus' attitude to the Samaritans? I mean, first of all, he leads a woman uh, to Christ at the woman at the well at Samaria. He actually, read the story, he spends two days there. So they know of him. Uh, he heals a, a leper that was a Samaritan. When Jesus tells one of the greatest stories, uh, some have said the greatest story uh, that he ever told, was on uh, the, the guy who had been uh, uh, hurt and had been robbed. Who was it that helped him and showed grace and mercy? It was a, he made a Samaritan the hero of his story to the Jewish people, even against a priest. And when Jesus leaves the earth, he looks at him and says, go into all the world and preach the gospel into Jerusalem and Samaria. So Jesus has a big, big plus for the Samaritan. So here's what happened. Jesus, who's been very, very kind and gracious to the Samaritan, is now traveling to Jerusalem. And on the way, they need a place to stay for the night. They need a place to hold up. So the disciples go ahead and say, hey, look, Jesus is coming. We need a place. We need a place for like 15 of us or whatever else. you got a, You got a place that we can. And they look at him and go, no. We're not helping you because you're on your way to Jerusalem. So we've got no interest in helping you at all. Go go talk to somebody else. And the messengers come back to the disciples and they go, hey, look, we we, we can't stay here. They don't want us. And James and John have a brilliant solution. Let us call down fire from heaven that they may be consumed. That's their solution. These These are loyal followers of Jesus who have been with him for a while, and their solution is, give us a chance and we'll wipe them out. Now, what they're asking is not that far off, because you've got to know a little Old Testament history. So, hang on. When he talks in here, notice what he says, just as Elijah did. A lot of you will probably think that's the story of uh, Mount Carmel and Elijah calling down fire from heaven. It's not. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 1 about a king called Ahaziah. I- I'm going to get this wrong. Huh? What? Bill. I like that idea. Okay, it's Ahaziah, but we're going to call him Bill. All right, so here's the deal. Here's the deal with Ahaziah. I kind of like Bill, though. Uh, Ahaziah, here's the deal. Here, his mom and dad were Ahab and Jezebel. Now, do you know anything about ah. Old Testament... Those are not two good names that you want to be associated with. Well, those were his mom and dad, okay? That was mommy and daddy, was Jezebel and Ahab, okay? He was the king of the, area, uh, of the area. He was in charge. What happened was Ahaziah was in his palace one night. He leans up against the lattice and falls. He falls, and it's a near-death experience, and he wants to know whether or not he will live or die. So what Ahaziah does is he gets a messenger, and he says, I want you to go find out from the prophets, and and they worship Baal and Baal Peor and and Beelzebub and all these other pagan gods. He said, I want you to go and ask the pagan gods whether I'm going to live or die. So the messenger gets and heads out on his way to go and and talk to the, the, the pagan prophets, and God comes to Elijah, and God says, hey, Elijah, look, I want you to go down, and I want you to intercept the messenger, and I want you to tell him that Ahaziah is going to die. So Elijah does that. He goes, he meets this guy on the road, and he goes, look, you don't need to go any further. Here's a message from God. He's going to die. You just turn around, go back and tell him. So the messenger goes around, turns around, goes back, comes to Isaiah and goes, hey, you're going to die. He goes, what? Who told you that? He goes, I don't know. It was a hairy guy with a belt. Literally. He said, it's a hairy guy with a belt. Isaiah automatically knew who it was. He goes, it was Elijah. So, Ahaziah, being the pagan king that he was, said, he grabbed a captain and 50 men. And he said, I want you to go and go get Elijah. Now, you don't take an army of 50 guys and a captain if you're, you have good intentions for this guy. So, the captain and the 50 men go out and they find, they find Elijah and Elijah's sitting on top of a hill. And they tell him, Elijah, come down. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, let God answer by fire. Fire comes down from heaven, consumes 50 guys plus the captain. 51 people die immediately. Word gets back to Ahaziah that that's what happens. So what does Ahaziah do? Sends another 51 guys. So he gets a captain, another 50 guys, and they come back, and they see Elijah sitting on top of the hill, and they say, come on down." And he says, if I'm the man of God, then let God answer by fire. And boom, they're gone. So now we've got 102 people dead just trying to get Elijah. And what does Isaiah do? He sends another 51 guys. So he sends another group there. Now this guy, any of you who are in leadership, this guy's smart. This captain approaches tentatively and goes, hey, look, I know who you are. I have tremendous respect for you. Show me grace and mercy. Is there any chance you would please come down from that hill and go see Ah Ahaziah with us? And Elijah goes, sure. And he comes down. That guy, he's brilliant. This guy's a smart guy. He goes back to Ahaziah. He looks at Ahaziah and says, God has said, you're going to die. And he dies shortly after that. Now, here's the thing. You know where that story took place? In this area. In Samaria. Everyone knew the story. And so... James and John, looking at it, step back and go, hey, look, you let us take care of this. These guys are worshiping in the wrong place, they're worshiping the wrong place. You let us take care of it. We'll handle it for you. And God says, and, and, and that was their solution. And Jesus looks at them and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not what we're about, guys. That's not what we're about. Second story. Uh, go to, uh, the, uh, again, um, these guys, Luke, uh, or Matthew, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 20. Here's the story. Different story. You know, we'll, I'll tile this together in a little bit on lessons that we can learn. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with their sons, kneeling down and asking him something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? Now, James and John get their mom to go talk to Jesus. Okay? Now, I haven't talked about this a lot, but sons of Zebedee, here's what you need to know. Zebedee was very, very influential. We gather that he had a lot of money. We gather that he was a person of extreme prominence and importance. Uh, In fact, uh, so much so that uh, some people believe that actually you can trace him back to being a Levite. Uh, We know that he was very close to the high priest. In fact, that's why they think at Jesus' crucifixion John was able to get access in some of those places because his daddy, Zebedee, had close ties to the high priest. The only way you had close ties to the high priest was either you were super spiritual or super rich. Uh, His mom, many people believe, was Salome, so she was able to travel with them from time to time. And we know uh, a number of instances where she supported and helped Jesus and took care of food and places and stuff like that. So basically what happens is James and John come to mom and say, Hey, mom, look, we need you to ask Jesus something for, for us. So she comes to Jesus. She says, I got something to ask you. And notice what she says Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left hand in your kingdom. That's a big ask. She said, look, I know one day you're going to be king and you're going to rule and everything else. And what happens is when I walk into the kingdom, I want to be able to look up and I want to be able to see James and John, my two boys, sitting up there with you. And by the way, she makes this request in front of all of the other disciples. So this is a pretty gutsy move. Jesus answered and said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm... To, about to drink, to be baptized with a baptism I'm about to be baptized with. In other words, You have no idea what I'm about ready to go through. You have no idea what, I'm about, what, what, what issues I'm about ready to go under for the kingdom of God. You really think they can do that? And James and John, in their utter humility, stand up and say what? We are able. You bet we are. They had no clue what they were signing up for. They said, you bet. You bring it on, and we'll handle it all, because we're with you, Jesus. And notice what happened. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. It's prepared for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. Um, I, okay, some of you have been Christians a long time. Let me give you something that's kind of fun here, right? God the Son is saying there's something he can't do because it's God the Father's responsibility. Now, wait a minute, they're equal. But they have different roles. And that's exactly what happens here. He says, look, you know what? That's not mine to give. That's the Father's. The Father's the one who's going to do that, not me. But he said that's, that's, the, that's, that's what's happening here. And he goes on. Uh, listen to the rest of the passage. Uh, next, next verse, guys. Um, and when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. The ten guys are sitting here going, really? You brought your mommy in to try to get this from Jesus? Really? And they were upset. I mean, they were livid. And notice what he says. You know that the rule, but Jesus called them all himself. Because Jesus is standing back now, and Jesus is watching this and going, oh, i got to muscle my hands now. You know, you, know, I don't, you know, James and John, you guys should have known better, but now I've got a big mess and everybody's fighting and everybody's all mad and the disciples are having a big brouhaha now and, and they hate him and they hate uh, And So Jesus calls them all together and here's what he said. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. He said, you know how it goes in the corporate world. It's, it's dog eat dog, every man for himself. Climb over whoever you've got to climb to get to the top ladder. He said, you know that's the way the world works. But he says, yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He looks at him and goes, guys, you don't understand what I'm all about. He said, I'm not about, it's not about I'm being here for me to do this for me. He said, I'm here to give my life for everyone. I'm here to serve. If there was anybody who had the ability to stand up and be served, it would be me. But you know what? I'm here to give my life for you and everyone else. That's what we're about, guys. We're about giving our lives for other people. We're not about us. Okay? And so that's the second story. Third story, Acts chapter 12. Uh, Acts chapter 12, here's what it says. Uh, Herod Antipas, by the way, is in in control here. Uh, Herod Agrippa is the one who who, uh, beheaded John the Baptist. This is actually... Uh, a different Herod, uh, and notice what it says. About this time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. It's interesting. He decides to try to harass Christians, and the first person he chooses, it's, what's significant here is he chooses James. And when everybody gets excited because he chose James, then he goes and gets Peter next, and Peter escapes from prison in the rest of Acts chapter 12. But the first person he gets is James. Now, it may have been because James was the loudest, Maybe because James was the most aggressive, maybe because James was making the biggest impact, but James is the guy he picks. And he says, then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and then because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to see Peter, and it was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, here's where we've got to step outside the Bible for a minute and go to history and, and extra-biblical literature and kind of things. So this isn't in the Bible, but here's how the story goes from the history, historians of the day that as they brought James in to stand trial, there was a guard that was escorting him in. And as James was talking to the guard, the guard became a Christian. And so as the guard becomes a Christian, and he's now on trial at the the beam of the, the judgment seat there, and he's telling about his faith and everything else, the guard stands up and acknowledges that he's a Christian now too. And so they decide that the sentence for James is going to be that he's going to be beheaded. And because the other guy claimed Christ as well, we'll behead him as well. So they both end up with the same fate. And as they are walking away to be beheaded, the story goes that, again, not Bible, this is history. Uh, The story goes that as they're walking away to beheaded, the guard looks at James and, and asks forgiveness for taking him to trial. And James, Mr. Son of Thunder, Mr. Hot-headed, Mr. Passionate, uh, you know, call-down-fire-from-heaven guy, his last words to him were, Peace be unto you. And they were both led away together and beheaded at the same time. That's the history story part of it. That this guy is able to make that kind of, 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 of change. So let's talk about some things for us that I think, will help us as we kind of put these stories together and some things we can learn from James. Here's the first one. You have to be careful that when you do something, you do the right thing at the right time and the right way for the right motive. You see, there was a time to call down fire from heaven. Elijah's sitting on the hill. There, There was a time for that. It was the right time, it was the right motive, it was the right place, everything was in line for it. When Jesus is is being mistreated by the Samaritans, that's not the right time, that's not the right motive. Jesus said, look, that's not why I've come this time. There's coming a day that he's coming again, and he's coming as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's coming to pour out vengeance and judgment on this earth. That day is coming, but it is not now, and it was not then. He was coming as a prince of peace, as a counselor, as an everlasting. He was coming at that point for a whole different reason. And for James and John to recommend that fire come down from heaven, that wasn't the place. And that wasn't the time. And that wasn't the right response. You see, here's the thing you see about James. He has this incredible passion. But he doesn't keep it in check. And that's what Jesus rebukes him for. Jesus looks at him and goes, "Look, okay." And again, these are the people Jesus spent the most time with. These are the people that Jesus says, "Look, I can take that unbridled passion. I can take that hot-headedness. I can take that temper, that, that losing your temper thing." And you just let, let, help, let me help you here. You follow me, and we'll work through it. You follow me and we'll end up working. Because I can use your passion. It's just right now, your passion is in all the wrong areas. And you need to understand that, that that's exactly what God does. And God helps these guys to understand. There is a right time, a right place, a right mode. It's all got to come together there. This is what gets some of you in trouble. You have this temper. You have this passion. You have these things that you get very, very strong feelings about. And that is all good as long as you use it at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, for the right motive. See, you've got to get that right. Um, I'm going to go on because it's where we are as a culture right now. Some of you are very passionate about this election. And you are very passionate about your candidate. And you are very passionate about why people should vote. No problem with that. And you want to convince people of it. No problem with that. But you've got to be careful here that you don't shut down the doors to be able to communicate with them later about other things. See, then your passion has gotten in the way of your message. That's what was about ready to happen here. Their passion for people treating Jesus right was about ready to get in the way of what Jesus was really all about, which was about coming to give his life for them, not being treated the right way by them. That's where some of you are struggling right now in your marriages. You know why? Because you're passionate maybe about changing what needs to change in your marriage. But here's the thing. You're doing it in the wrong way. Or for the wrong motive. Or at the wrong time. You've got to work to get those things right. So that God can use your passion in a right. Some of you have a temper. Okay, look. You were wired with that you are wired that way that's not an excuse you just have to figure out a way to funnel it jesus demonstrates that very easily he gets angry when he comes into that situation where they're they're taking his father's house and making it a den of thieves with the money part of it And and read that story very carefully. It is not a deal where Jesus goes in, sees this, and loses his temper. It's actually a story in which Jesus goes in, sees it, goes back that night, comes back the next day, and, 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 and does a specific action to make a point. It was not a fly off the handle thing and he just lost his cool when he saw that. That's not what that story was about. And it's important for us to understand. Passion is a good thing, but like anything else, it's a two edged sword if you use that passion, that temper, that, those things in a wrong way, then it does way too much damage. It does way too much damage. And, and, and that's where it becomes important for us. And that's what you see with James and John. They, I mean, you know, something happens, there's no grace, there's no mercy, there's, let's wipe them out. No, that's not the way it needs to be done. And, and we need to understand that, okay? And, and for some of us, that's a growth problem. But again, when God picks people, two of the three people that he picks to spend the most time with are two hot-headed brothers. Now, that ought to give some of you a tremendous amount of hope, all right? Uh, Because again, God can use that. That's what I want you to understand. God can use that. You just got to learn how to channel it and direct it in the right way. Second thing. In the story of the the thing, um, you see this tremendous arrogance and pride with these two guys, particularly with James. You saw it in the first story when, think about this for a minute, they looked at the Son of God and said, hey, we will call down fire from heaven. Really? I mean, even Elijah didn't do that. I mean, Elijah said, if I'm going to let God answer this way, these guys are going, hey, we'll do it for you. These guys were putting themselves in the category of Elijah, and they were telling the Son of God that they would do this for him if, they, if he wanted them to. And then they get their mom to go, hey, look, we want the one in two spots. <coughs> and we're afraid to ask, will you go? I mean, think about this. Mommy, will you go and talk to Jesus so that we can get the one in two spots? Why? And here's why. Because these guys, it was about them. They were looking at this thing going, you're going to be king one day, and we want to be on the right hand and the left hand. We want everybody to see us in all of our glory. We want us to see, see how important we are. In your. And what they were saying to the other ten guys is, we're more important than all of you guys. That's why they get so irate about it. And what does Jesus do? He pulls them aside and he says, let me explain something to you. Guys, it's not about you. It's not about you. And if you want to try to make it about you, you don't understand what it's all about. You really want to be my follower? Then you make it about other people. You go and serve other people. You go and love other people. You go and take care of other people. It's not about you. Listen, I cannot stress how important this is for us to embrace this idea. It's not about you. You give me one person in a marriage who thinks it's about them, and I'll show you a marriage that's in trouble. Why? Because they want to make the marriage about them. And you know what? That ends in disaster. You show me somebody at work that decides that work is all about them, and everybody should work around them. You want to know why we're struggling right now as a culture? Because, okay, I'm going to get on my hobby horse, I'm going to get off. Here's what I see. Do you remember the day that in a family, it was about the family? It worked something like this. Kids, supper's at 6 o'clock. Well, I'm late. I'm going to be late. I'm not going to have Well, then you don't eat. Well, I don't like that. Okay, good. Joey will have it. Well, what are you going to have for me? Nothing. You eat what's in front of you. You don't eat. It's the family. This is a family meal. This is a family meal. And if you want to eat the family meal, you eat the family meal. And if you don't want to eat the family meal, you don't eat. It's really simple. And then we got into this thing where we started catering to family around individuals. And I realized that that's the way it starts out, you know, in our house right now. Who's the center of attention? Claire. All about Claire. Everything's about Claire. Everything is about Claire. My Facebook feed. Everything's about Claire. My, my when she comes to our house, everything's about Claire. Why? Because it's all about Claire. Now, what happens if Claire's 35, and we're still doing that? <laughs> Tough, road to hoe. Tough road to hoe. You're exactly right. Why? Because we expect that at some point, as a child grows, it becomes less about them and more about others. You wonder why we're struggling as a culture right now when we've raised a generation of kids? that we have taught them that it's all about them, it's all about them, it's all about them, and they get into the workplace and they go to the employers and they go, well, it's really about my schedule and you know I can only work these hours and I can only do this and, oh, that's going to be too hard on me, blah, 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 blah. And then we step back and go, I don't understand why we have the problem we have. Because we never made the transition that it's not about you. It's not about you. You want to know why we have Christians that get so bent out of shape about something because something doesn't go their way? Because they've never made the transition to it's not about you. Want to know why marriages are struggling? Because they've never made the transition to it's not about you. And until we do that, we miss not only the point of everything that Jesus is teaching, but we miss the point of how life can actually function well. See, think about it for a minute. If I get up tomorrow morning and my whole goal is, you know what, I'm going to make Gene's day the best that I can make it. And my wife gets up every day, gets up tomorrow, and says, yeah, I don't have to do it on Monday. She has to do it every day. Um, no, I mean, my wife gets up tomorrow and says, I want to make Jim's day the best day that I can make it. What kind of marriage do we have? With two people trying to outserve each other. Not, this is a brain surgery, folks. You're like, well, you don't understand. If I do that, then, you know, they'll take advantage of me. And, oh, oh, so it's about you. You missed the point. You know. Oh, well, you, you time out. It's not about you. The sooner we can embrace that, the sooner that we can realize that when we go into the workplace, it's about doing the best job we can for our employer because we're working for the Lord, not for our boss. The center I can I, I look at it about, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? You want me to take that job? You want me to do this? You want me to do that? You want, it's not about you. That, we've got to get across. Jesus looked at these guys and he goes, Guys, look, you followed me for all these years, but you still don't understand it yet. It's not about you guys. It's about me. It's about serving me. It's about serving other people. It's about pouring your life into other people. That's what it's about. It's not about you. And one of the reasons some of us struggle is because we made it about us. And when you do that, you will start to find that life does not have the joy. You think about it for a minute. Some of the greatest things that you have ever done in your life have been when you gave to meet the needs of somebody else. That's been some of the things that brought some of the most happiness, the most joy to your life when it's been about somebody else and not about you. That's because that's a fundamental Christian principle, that we serve one another. That's what we do. We serve one another. It's not about us. And the last thing is this. You need to understand this. Following Jesus is going to cost you. There's going to be a price tag. And it's probably going to be a very high price tag. In James's situation, we don't talk, I didn't talk about this, but you need to understand this. If, put this together, James is the oldest, right? And Zebedee, Zebedee is a very prominent man who apparently, from all looks of it, has plenty of money. So when Daddy dies, who gets double the inheritance james the oldest oldest got double so james being the older brother guess what he was going to get so when he looks at daddy as they're fishing on the boat and jesus says follow me he turns his back on all dad's wealth and what does he trade that for Death by us being beheaded by Herod. In other words, he pays not just a price, but he pays the ultimate price in giving his life for it. You need to understand this. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're really going to follow Christ, it may cost you. The price tag might be high. You might have to endure things that your neighbors don't have to endure. You know why? Because God wants to use your witness and your testimony to show them how real your faith is. When they look at martyrs and when we look at people who died for the cause of Christ, James is the first disciple, he's the first apostle who pays that price. I don't know what it will cost us. I don't know what it will cost you. But you know what? If we're really willing to follow, then we're willing to pay whatever price it needs as long as God can be honored and glorified in our life. There'll be a time when it's all made right and rewards are given out and blah, 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 blah. But that's not what it's about. It's about serving Christ no matter what he calls us to do. And, and I just want to challenge you because I think James is a great lesson for it. I think a great lesson that we've got to be careful of, that we do the right thing in the right time in the right way, or the right motive. We really need to look at our hearts before we, we, we jump in and do something. I think secondly, it's the idea, like I say, of it's not about you not about you. And if you're going to make it about you, it doesn't end well. It doesn't end well. And if you're really going to follow, the price tag might be pretty high. But um, following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. It's really not. And uh, what you find in the life of Christ is, it's iron, it's ironic, the greater the crowd's, the more, the higher the cost that he explained to them. He was constantly doing. He was constantly teaching, not to gain more people, but to explain to them what it was really, 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 really about. And all twelve of these guys end up paying with their life. And so I just want to encourage you with the idea of you know what, you might be a little tempered hothead from time to time, but God can use that. God can use it. I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying God can use it. You just got to follow it the right way. Don't make it about you. Don't make it about you. And let's be genuine followers. And let's really follow with our whole heart in our life, if needs be. So I end with this. James teaches us the importance of tempering our passion with love. Jesus uses his life to show the importance of humility and service. And he's a great example of following Jesus no matter what the cost. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's so easy sometimes for us and our passion to leave it unchecked. Before we know it, Lord, there's a whole slew of bodies around us of lives that we have hurt in a negative way. And Lord, we don't want to do that. He'll help us. Lord, there's a lot of us that we have a tendency to make it about us. And, Lord, we, we, we want to make it about us and surround it about us. And, Lord, uh, that, that, that doesn't end well, Lord, uh, If we really, really want to experience life, we have to learn to give it away. So help us to be able to do that. And, Lord, may we serve you no matter what the cost. And, Lord, as we head into a future that is uncertain, may we be willing to stand with you no matter what the cost. Because we genuinely follow you with our whole heart, life, and soul. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Uh, Let's stand together.